Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Even with the best of intentions, international development efforts don't always work. They often start with small trials to test policy ideas. They often end when what worked among a few dozen fails miserably among thousands. And have a listen to top-flight British politicians. Even though Britain's shores contain a wildly diverse set of accents, in the halls of power, it all sounds very southeastern. Our language columnist asks why. But first... Inept. Uniquely dysfunctional diplomatically clumsy, incoherent and chaotic policy. These frank assessments of the Trump administration from Britain's ambassador to America, Sir Kim Derrick, were never intended to see the light of day. But over the weekend, a mysterious leak of diplomatic cables put them at center stage. Yesterday, Sir Kim resigned. In Britain's parliament, there was a rare moment of agreement between Prime Minister Theresa May and the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn. This morning, I have spoken to Sir Kim Derrick. I have told him that it is a matter of great regret that he has felt it necessary to leave his position as ambassador in Washington. I think the uh, comments made about him are beyond unfair and wrong. I think he's given honourable and good service and he should be thanked for it. Never one to let a slight go unanswered, President Donald Trump lashed out against the ambassador, calling him, among other things, a very stupid guy. Many British politicians had fallen in behind Sir Kim, highly respected diplomat, saying that the very purpose of ambassadors is to share candid views from abroad. But one person who notably avoided full-throated support was Boris Johnson, the favorite to become prime minister in two weeks' time. Hi, look, I just, I just, I just, I just heard that uh, Kim Derrick resigned, and I want to say that I regret that. But you weren't going to thank back Thank you. Him. You said thank last you. night you weren't going to back him. My view is it's wrong to drag civil servants into the, into the political arena, that's what I think. This is more than a mere diplomatic spat. It sheds light on the changing nature of the special relationship between Britain and America, a relationship that's particularly strategic as the hand-wringing over Brexit continues. It is a very embarrassing rupture in, in the relationship. Duncan Robinson is our political correspondent. These are comments that are normally only made in private, and when comments that are made in private are made public, they often have a huge uh, effect. But there's nothing in here that we haven't heard in in other forums, right? There, there's nothing sort of s- distinctly surprising in what's been said. No, there's no, there's nothing particularly original at all. If you opened any U.S. newspaper in the past two years, you'll have heard similar stories to the one that Kim Derrick was was laying out. And nobody in the British government would have been surprised that this is what life in Trump's White House is like. And yet, for it to spill out into the public is is an embarrassment, as you say. 
It's hugely embarrassing, and it says that something's rather rotten at the heart of the British government, given that its two main strengths are diplomacy and intelligence. And in both circumstances, it seems to have let itself down. One, because there was a leak from a civil service, and two, because they don't know who it is yet. What are the sort of dominant theories on how it came about? There were lots of them floating around. It could be a disgruntled minister, it could be a, d- a disgruntled civil servant, or it could even be a, a foreign actor. At the moment, there's there's no clue of who did it, and so there's just rampant speculation. But the discussion now has, uh, now that he has resigned, has turned to sort of why he's resigned. Why? The key point was during a debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, who are both vying to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and therefore the next prime minister, while Jeremy Hunt was four square in, in his support of Kim Darroch, uh, Boris Johnson refused to say whether or not he would, he would sort of keep Kim Darroch in post until he was due to retire in December. And at that point, according to people who've spoken to Kim Darroch, that was when he saw the writing on the wall, as it were. And what does that uh, refusal by Boris Johnson to, to, to sort of draw a line in the sand tell you about, well, about his relationship with the, the Trump administration? It shows that he sees his relationship with the Trump administration as a very, very important one for his future premiership, uh, given that he is the favourite to take over. And so he's putting quite a few eggs into one basket there. What do you mean? In that Donald Trump is not regarded as the most reliable ally. He's regarded as someone who's relatively erratic and someone who, as we've seen in the past few days, very, very thin-skinned, someone who can't take much criticism at all. and so. Putting all, uh, putting setting a lot of political capital by a very unreliable actor might not end well for Mr. Johnson. But but this is this is a man who's in the middle of a leadership contest, albeit kind of a, a one-sided one. How is that going to play at home? Like no, no one, no one in Britain wants to be perceived as America's lapdog. So there are two audiences for this. The first audience is the audience that matters most in the short term, which is Conservative Party members, because they're the ones who get to decide whether or not Boris Johnson will end up in Downing Street. And they, on the whole, are relatively uh, favourable towards Trump. They, they, they like his bombasticness. They like the idea and his, his offer of a, of a big, beautiful free trade deal. The problem will come from voters at large. Now, vote, British voters, for all that they are uh, big, big, big fans of the US, they're very, very uh, unfavourable towards prime ministers who are seen to sort of suck up to Washington too hard. You saw that during the Iraq war with Tony Blair, who was portrayed as a poodle. You saw during the Brexit referendum when Barack Obama intervened and said Britain would be back of the line uh, if it wanted a free trade deal uh, after Brexit. There was a huge backlash to that. And so the notion that you had a man who wants to be prime minister refusing to stick up for a British diplomat in Washington, our man in Washington, uh, will stick in the core of many voters. And, and I think that's, that's something that Team, team Johnson have realized that they, they should have been clearer on in, in the past few days. And so how do you see that playing into uh, the next prime ministership and how Britain's going to deal with Brexit and the degree to which it'll be, you know, looking west and thinking trade deals? Britain's got a choice over the coming decades, which is that whether it wants to be in the European sphere of influence or whether it wants to be in the US sphere of influence. Um, So for 43 years, it was part of the EU. Now it's got to make a choice. And there are all sorts of ruptures between Brussels and Washington in terms of regulation, how how it acts towards China, and uh, huge geopolitical issues. And basically, Britain's going to have to make a decision and, and pick a side. 
And do you think that this current mess influences any of that? Weakens its hand with either or both partners? It shows the pitfalls of jumping into bed with Donald Trump. Brits are obsessed with the, the, the special relationship. But at the same time, the president of the U.S. has just declared uh, our ambassador in Washington a very stupid guy and described our prime minister as useless. Now, that to me doesn't sound like a particularly special relationship. But at the same time, the U.S. is a crucial partner. And so you have to balance off like, the fundamental importance of that relationship with the current unreliability of the occupant in the White House. And do you think it casts a shadow on any sort of future free trade deals between Britain and America? Uh, no, because the fundamentals of that trade deal are, are still the same. Uh, nothing has changed from having a, a very impolite president or a very uh, public spat. Uh, th- those issues, uh, settling a free trade deal will still be this in- large, in- enormous problem that will take years to solve. And so one small, in the grand scheme of things, diplomatic spat's not going to blow that out the water. And do you get a sense that there are any onward consequences for Mr. Trump, who is, has been arguably uh, more incendiary and more vocal than these, these cables? Donald Trump can effectively do what he likes. <laughs> He's the most powerful man in the world. And he's very, very unafraid to share his thoughts. There are no sort of rules or norms that, that, that keep him in check on, on these sorts of issues. So, no. No. So he, he gets to beat up the next ambassador too, if he so wishes. Yes, and, and those are the new rules of the game. Duncan, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks very much. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. How do you run a successful development project? A recent case in Bangladesh suggests the answers aren't entirely straightforward. In Bangladesh, if you're a rice farmer, there's quite a lot of the year when you don't have very much to do and you can't really make any money. And in particular, there's a long period between planting the rice and harvesting the rice when there's really very little work to be had in the village. At that point in the year, people really become extremely poor and they frequently don't eat properly, they can't afford to spend money on medicine, they may well get into debt and and so on and so forth. Joel Budd is our social policy editor. The idea, which was really worked on by a professor at Yale University called Mushfik Mubarak, the idea was to encourage men from these villages to travel to a nearby city for just maybe one month, two months, three months to do some sort of casual work. They might be a rickshaw driver, they might be a bricklayer, not well-paid stuff, but much, much better than sitting around in the village doing nothing. At first, they were just given small amounts of money, pretty much just enough to buy a bus ticket. Then later, as the program got a bit larger, they were offered sort of small loans, which they had to repay. And they they had to migrate in order to get this money. They couldn't simply, you know, take it and spend it on medicine or something like that. And so how did it go? Did it work as intended? 
I went out to Bangladesh a, a couple of years ago and wrote about how well it was working. Trials were done involving several thousand people who had taken this money and gone off to cities. And I, I met some of these people. They really had done well out of it. They had returned with more money. Their, their families were less poor. And also, crucially, the people who remained in the villages who didn't migrate also became slightly better off. Because there were fewer laborers around, those who stuck around were able to you know, pick up all the, all the work that there was. So it really looked like a very, very good program. So then the program was scaled up to more than 100,000 Bangladeshis in uh, 2017. They were given small loans. And unfortunately, as the data came in, it became clear that the program in that year had had almost no effect on these people's livelihoods. Why is that? What's the difference between small-scale trials and a fuller trial? The local Bangladeshi charity set targets for the number of people who would be offered these loans in a particular village. And the workers for this charity seem to have done pretty much what you and I would do, which is they approached the people first who were most likely to migrate to a city, which is probably the people who always migrated. And so as a result, they seem not to have encouraged new people to migrate. And so as a result, the net effect was sort of fairly close to zero. They were simply encouraging people to do stuff that they would have done anyway, and they didn't really change anybody's behavior. So it's a classic problem with scaling because when you move from a small trial to a sort of a huge national or regional program, you have to do things like set targets and have incentives and things like that. As the designer of a a program like this, you can no longer be sort of highly involved. You no longer have sort of PhD students running around villages working out exactly what to do. You have to turn the program bureaucratic. It was the creation of these targets that was the fatal thing. And so what are the lessons here? When you scale up a development project from a few villages to a few hundred villages to a few thousand villages, you also scale up the problems. And Mushfik Mubarak speaks about this in an interview with Yale University. If you start inducing 20,000 people, 30,000 people, or 200,000 people, it may not work in the same way. So, for example, if you move lots of people out, maybe, you know, if all the able-bodied men leave, some social scientists in the past have expressed concerns that perhaps that makes the origin village much more vulnerable. Or you might worry that if you send lots of people into the city, they might stress the city's intake capacity. And so this is a universal problem that you get when scaling the, these things up. I mean, if it, if it happens every time, how to, how to avoid it? We don't exactly know how universal it is because I think in, in many cases, development economists kind of prefer not to know. The assumption is frequently that if you have tested something with 10,000 people and you then scale it up to 100,000 people, you must be having 10 times the effect. And it's only when we look quite carefully at uh, what happened with that bigger group that we see that things can very often go wrong. And, and one quite common thing is that um, as a project gets bigger, the government becomes interested, local trade unions become interested, political parties become interested, and they can step in and wreck whatever it is you're trying to do. And you've seen that dynamic play out before? 
There was a very interesting test in Kenya allowing schools to hire teachers on contracts. But these teachers would not be civil servants. They would not be represented by trade unions. The theory is, is that as a result, they would be less uh, lazy. They would actually turn up and teach uh, classes and so forth. When a charity did this, the results were really impressive. So the government stepped in and said, right, well, we're going to allow all schools to hire teachers on this basis. Well, of course, lo and behold, this was noticed and the unions moved in and started to try to represent these teachers. The teachers seemed to have become convinced pretty quickly that they were going to be just like regular Kenyan civil service teachers. And so they became just as poor as teachers normally are in Kenya. So the result was essentially no change. Is this dynamic a problem just in developing countries? No, it happens in rich countries too. There was a project in Tennessee. The state tested much smaller class sizes. The results were fantastic. They were particularly good for ethnic minority pupils. And so various states, in, including Tennessee, decided that they would try to you know, scale this up. And the results were really strikingly poor. Because if you have smaller classes, you need more teachers. So suddenly there's great demand for teachers. Schools in California in poor neighborhoods, which tend to have ethnic minority students in them, teachers were suddenly given the opportunity to go and teach in nice suburban schools with few fewer discipline issues, etc. So really talented teachers were sucked out of the schools where they were most needed. So what's the solution here then? If, if you can't run a big trial until you've convinced yourself with a small one, but the small ones don't give a good indication of how the big ones are going to go, what's to be done? Well, ideally, you just need to keep studying these sorts of projects as they get bigger. You can't just assume that if you've managed to do some really good work with 10,000 people, that it will still work with 10 million people. You just need to keep studying the effects to the extent that you can and see what's happening because the chance of things going wrong is unfortunately very, very large. Thanks very much for coming in, Joel. Thank you. In 2015, when a new parliamentarian named Jess Phillips had her chance to address Britain's House of Commons for the first time, she commented on how she stood out from other members. I think that in this chamber, a Brummie accent is a very rare thing, and I look forward to changing that. Ms Phillips represents Birmingham Yardley, a constituency where people sound different from a lot of her fellow politicians. British politics sounds southeastern, and it sounds middle class or upper middle class, or more so, and it sounds highly educated. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. I think a lot of people arriving to Britain, as I did, I'm not British, will find that they hear a lot of accents they've never heard represented on TV. They've never seen it on a BBC news broadcast. They've never heard it in the Houses of Parliament. So the, the, the typical regional accents of the North, in particular, are very underrepresented in what outsiders see of Britain and even what Britons see of themselves when they watch themselves on television. We see very, very little at the top of British politics. What, like none? Well, the non-English countries have often had a bit of an exception from this. Gordon Brown, who was prime minister, was Scottish and sounded Scottish. And you know, in 1997, when we came into power, the National Health Service was dying on its feet. We just heard the stories about what was happening. We're really talking to a large extent about the regions of England. There's never been a prime minister who really sounded anything other than fairly southeastern and uh, well-educated, you know, like I say, middle class or upper. Harold Wilson 
who was prime minister in the 60s and early 70s, came from Huddersfield in Yorkshire and definitely has a little tinge of that in his voice. He's not only on the labor required to do a job. Tony Blair would try on a bit of what's called estuary. That's the kind of middle to lower middle accent of the Southeast. Could try just a bit of it on. I mean, there is no way whatever he was actually privately educated and, and was not, you know, a working class type, but he was a labor prime minister, so couldn't afford to sound too posh. But even then, we're talking about hints of that. So how, how did the accent then of, of the Southeast become so, so intertwined with politics? Well, about 200 years ago, there's no evidence we have that people really tried to imitate Southeastern English. Even the upper classes around the country would speak in their local accent. But starting in the 19th century, London's power grew as the state grew. More educated people moved to the city. People were generally more mobile. And there's just this general gravity that pulls talent, money, resources, and prestige from the rest of the country towards London. Yeah, but um, there is social mobility and power centers kind of everywhere. Is this uniquely a British thing? Not uniquely, but it's, it's distinctly British, I'd say. I would contrast Britain with the United States, where people are often expected in public life in particular, and especially in politics, to keep the accent they grew up with. To change your accent would be seen as something like faking it. So you see greater diversity. Donald Trump has a clear New York accent. We repealed the core of the disastrous Obamacare. The individual mandate is now gone. Bernie Sanders, who's running for the Democratic nomination, even more so. He's from Brooklyn. People are worried about DACA. People are worried about North Korea. There's so much on the plate. You hear Southern accents. We have a great number of Southern politicians from Bill Clinton. I still believe in a place called hope. To George Bush. No doubt in my mind. We'll bring al-Qaeda to justice, peace or no peace in the Middle East. And we don't hear anything like that. Even though the Southern accent is really no bigger a share of the population in America, than the various northern accents are in Britain. Why is it different, and why is it such a distinctively British thing than to, to assume this, this southeastern accent? Well, one thing is that America is a big country, and it's very geographically diverse, and we have centers of the economy all around the country, and there's loads of industry and other things in the middle. London really looms large in the British economy in a way no place even comes close in the United States. I compare France and Germany. France is very heavily dominated by Paris, and French politicians are typically expected to minimize their regional accents, whereas Germany is a bit like America. Its economy is spread across the country, and people from Bavaria or, or from the southwest in Swabia are very, very proud of their regions, and they're proud of their accents. And to move from Bavaria to Berlin and start talking like a Berliner would be just bizarre because Berlin absolutely does not play the role of a London in the German economy. It's basically got the government and not much else. So that's it then. British politics is forever locked up with this accent, you think? Not necessarily. I think it might be going in a more diverse direction, but it's going to take a long time. The top of politics is a lagging indicator because we're getting the people who were educated 40 years ago. So we won't see a change tomorrow, but we're starting to see uh, characters come out, people like Jess Phillips from Birmingham who, who wear their accent on their sleeves, so to speak. I, I think it's... Birmingham. I, I should, I should, <laughs> um, sorry, Birmingham is in Alabama. Yes. Birmingham is in the western part of the United Kingdom. Birmingham. Thanks very much for your time, Lane. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.